Well, good morning. It is uh, really good to see everybody here this morning. So today's kind of a fun day. We have not only our service, but then right afterwards we'll have our annual meeting. And we just have such a great annual meeting. You know, just the place that the Lord has put our church family uh, has just really blessed us in our budget, has blessed us with faithful people and faithful leaders who have agreed to serve. And uh, just what a wonderful, what a wonderful thing. So you're all welcome to stay after and eat some food. But for that reason, the fact that we're talking about leaders, leaders are so important. And so we're going to be looking this morning at the mutual responsibilities of elders and the church. So we're going to look at a passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, that really emphasizes what are leaders supposed to do to the church? How do leaders think about the church? What is it that we are praying for as we think about praying for our leaders, which is so important? Uh, the second passage we're going to look at is in 1 Thessalonians 5, and that is a passage that talks about the responsibility of the church to the leaders. So mutual responsibility. We all have responsibilities to each other. One of the things that I love about the Bible and one of the things that is so important as we think about what God says about leaders and, 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 and the church is that first and foremost, we are all leaders and non-leaders. Everybody is just a part of the church and we all follow Christ. And I love that when the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Philippians, he actually writes his letter to the church. And then he gives a mention of the leaders. This is what he says in Philippians. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Now, there are some, some Christian organizations that when they talk about the church, they actually define the priesthood as the church. So people are not the church, it's the priesthood. And so when, when, uh, when, the, when those groups talk about like uh, that, that the, the tradition of the church, they are not talking about people. They are talking about the leaders. There's like this separation, this isolation. But for those of us who genuinely follow Christ and who read Scripture, what we understand is that we are all the body of Christ and we are all under Christ. And so uh, Paul reflects that in that when he writes this letter to the church, he writes it to everybody, but then he does specifically mention the overseers, those are elders, and the deacons, that's another group of leaders that serve the church. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need leaders but really, uh, what does the Bible say about leaders, right? It says that leaders are servants. The greatest among you will be servants. And so for all of us, every person, first and foremost, is just a Christian in the body of Christ. But within that, um, leadership is critical. And in the New Testament, the Bible gives qualifications for leaders and just says, hey, look around amongst yourselves, find people who are spiritually qualified and faithful and appoint them to positions of leadership. And so that is a high calling. It is an incredible privilege. And it's something that we should be thankful for and certainly pray for our leaders about. Because leadership is so important, Satan is always attacking leaders. And so Satan attacks leaders. If he can mess up leaders, Jesus says that uh, when you're fully trained, you will be like your leaders. Some of the biggest problems that people have is they do a bad job of picking leaders. 
And they can measure all different kinds of things rather than looking at what Scripture says about who God is looking for in leaders and appointing the right people. Um, uh, Satan also attacks the church. Uh, There's nothing that Satan likes better than a church with conflict and a church fighting. Let's just think about families, right? If you can get uh, leaders fighting with each other, like uh, think about how does it impact a family when a mom and dad can't get along? That's kind of a problem for that family, right? We've all seen that. Um, Or what is it like in a family when the kids hate the parents? Have you ever seen anything like that? That's pretty disruptive for a family too. And it is not God's intention for there to be that kind of division and conflict. And when we pick the right leaders who have the right heart, the, the right desire, the right motivations, and when people who are following leaders realize that first and foremost, we never follow a person. First and foremost, we follow Christ. And so our relationship with our leaders really has as the overarching um, uh, direction really what God says each of us are supposed to do. And uh, so that's what we're going to be considering this morning. What is it that God wants leaders to do with people? And what is it that God wants people to do toward their leaders? Now, one of the things I love about 1 Peter is that it is written by Peter. And uh, Peter is just, he is, is such a great personality. I and mean, we just love Peter when we read the Gospels. And Peter is such an encouraging person to me. And one of the reasons that he is so encouraging is that Peter like, has these moments where he, he does great things and says great things. But, but anytime Peter does something well, he's waiting to just really mess it up big time. It's like always his high moments and his lowest moments are together. And I just love that because it reminds us that God is not looking for perfect people. When you look at the disciples, man, they had so many problems. And yet God chose them and He used them. But one of the things that I am really encouraged by is that when you read um, the Gospels and you see Peter, and then you read First and Second Peter, you see this brash, strong, powerful person that's always sticking his foot in his mouth. And by the end, when you read First and Second Peter, you see this gracious, loving, encouraging mature man. And it just is a reminder that God takes people who need to grow, and He uses them, and He helps them grow. That is an amazing thing. And Peter was certainly transformed by Christ from a prideful man to a very gracious man. And that is encouraging. So one of the things for us to consider this morning is that leadership is a gift from God and a very high calling. And the church needs faithful leaders that reverently serve Christ. And then for us as believers, we need to wholeheartedly follow, encourage, and actually work alongside the leaders that God has given us. So let me read these two passages. So the first is for um, our leaders as we think about leaders, and we'll be voting on some elders in our meeting. And so, um, but I would just say this. Um, There is a special and unique place for elders, but there are principles here that actually apply to every leader. In fact, uh, some of the things that we read in this passage, while they're written to elders, um, those same principles apply in how we parent, 
in how we lead anything that we're over. So let's read this first passage here, First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 1. It says, So I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to, going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief, chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And then he's going to say something here that would apply to the church uh, toward the elders, but, but also he says something really significant here to the elders themselves. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. But this is what he says that, that is a powerful thing for leaders. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. So, that's a powerful statement and charge to leaders. And uh, let's consider, um, again, um, a passage that addresses our responsibility to leaders. And this is also very important. 1 Thessalonians 5, 11-15 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with all of them. See to it that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek what is to do what is good to one another and to everyone. Okay, so let's consider our first point here as we focus in on some leaders. Um, leaders are responsible to shepherd God's people. And one of the first things that you see, like when you read this, is you see this attitude of humility. And one of the things that is really significant for us to be able to recognize in others and to think about in ourselves is shepherding starts with a humble attitude toward God. And that's one of the things that we see. It says here in 1 Peter 5, 1, Peter is an example of humility. When you think about Peter, like he's this prominent person in the New Testament. He's, he's the one that God um, in Acts is preaching this sermon and so many people get saved. And, and then he sends Paul to Cornelius' house in chapter 10. And, and Peter is somebody that is very respected in the church. And here he is, an old man, a disciple, somebody who personally witnessed Jesus. And when he writes to this church, he says this, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. One of the things that you see for the Apostle Peter, he didn't see himself as over other leaders. He, he, he saw himself, hey, we're in this together. So he exhorts them as a fellow elder. And you just see that attitude of humility. Uh, he writes that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. He does say to the people in the church, 
hey, you need to honor and respect your leaders. You need to humble yourself before your leaders. But he then just comes right back and immediately in verse 5, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, when you think about spiritual leadership, you think about the work of the church, especially 1 Corinthians, where, where Paul's talking about, he says, I watered, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but God brought the growth. Could you imagine what happens when a church is led by prideful people? God ends up being opposed to that church. So we certainly don't want God being opposed to our leaders. Um, if you're a parent and you're prideful and you're arrogant and God is opposed to you and what you're doing, man, that's a terrible thing. Uh, we need leaders that are humble. So let's just think a little bit about this. Um, so Peter is an example of humility and that uh, he, he does come to them as one who actually witnessed Jesus um, and also of a partaker of the glory to be revealed. One of the things that you're going to see in how this passage ends is what part of what drives and motivates Peter is that he is thinking about the fact that, first of all, he's a believer like everybody else. We want leaders that are believers first and foremost, that are partaking in the glory. Uh, there are plenty of people who are put in pos positions of leadership who are not even believers. Um, it's it's, a, it's a, a wonderful miracle, something I am very thankful for, but also a scary thing um, that I've gone to pastor's conferences where you'll have pastors that are there and they're gathered and in, their, um, in that pastor's conference it will be announced, we had um, some people come to Christ this week. And so you'll have pastors that become Christians. I have a good friend who um, is on the mission field, and one of the things that he does in Ethiopia is he trains pastors. And he had the privilege of gathering up all these pastors, people who are leading churches, and he had the privilege of training them and teaching them how to think about God's Word and how to teach. And then afterwards, one of those men <laughs> came forward and just said, I realized I'm not a Christian and I want to put my faith in Christ. And so he went to his church and he baptized that pastor in his church. And I just think, what a wonderful thing. But also, <laughs> what do you do when your pastor comes back to church and I went to a pastor's conference this week and I got saved? Um, or, and, and he was just saying, you know, like if I was in charge... Um, I actually would, we would have to take that guy out. We would not have a new person, a new Christian. This guy's been a Christian, just brand new Christian. Okay, he's going to lead the church. We wouldn't do that. But he's like, I'm not in charge. So the guy became a Christian. I baptized him. I'm thankful for that. You know, often we look at uh, many things that go wrong in churches across the country. And we can wonder what went wrong. You know, a lot of what goes wrong is the people leading don't even know the Lord. And we should be able to see and recognize that when it happens. But Peter here, he's just emphasizing that he is a partaker and he knows that Jesus is coming back. And that is what drives and motivates Peter is a desire to please the Lord and just he's living in light of the return of Christ. So let me just say a few things about humility. Um, humility is not 
weak, or insecure. Um, When you look at Jesus, one of the things we need to recognize is that Jesus was an example of humility. And uh, often you wouldn't say, you wouldn't describe some of what Jesus does and say, oh, that's really humble. Like when he walked into the temple and he just knocked over all the tables and got something and like drove these Pharisees out of the temple. That was his father's house and he drives them out. And you might not look at that and go, oh, what a humble man. Or how about when he gets the Pharisees together and he says, you brood of vipers. And he just tells them, "Um, every convert you make is going to be twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Like, could you picture a leader getting up and say, you religious leaders, you bunch of hypocrites. You know how often Jesus called people hypocrites? And, uh, and so you get Jesus, man, He was not weak. Um, humility is not... You don't see Jesus sitting around, sitting around with His disciples saying, oh guys, um, what do you think we should do? I kind of have some ministry ideas, but I want to hear what you think. You, know, that's, you don't see Jesus' leadership in that way. So Jesus was humble. And Jesus was also God. And so uh, that makes Him unique. But Jesus lived life in His humanity. And when you look at Jesus, Jesus was a humble person. And so humility is not weakness. It is not insecurity. It is not... um, It's not stepping out of your leadership position. There are often uh, many people who they say, oh, I'm a servant leader. And so what they mean by servant leader is, as a husband, that they provide no guidance or direction in their home. They just do whatever they're told. And they say, I'm a servant leader. And so um, humility is not weakness, insecurity. It is not being passive. So, but what is humility? Humility really has as its foundation um, faithfulness to God and a trust and reliance on God. When the Apostle Paul looks at his work, he understands that God is the one who brings fruit to what he does. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but who caused growth? It was God. And so, um, uh, faithfulness and confidence in God. One of the examples of that, a negative example, is actually Moses. How many of you remember when Moses was called? Um, So Moses is, he's been raised, trained in the wisdom of Egypt, and then he, he, he actually has a sense of God's special calling for him because he sees these two, this uh, Egyptian abusing a Jewish person and he gets involved and he protects that Jewish person and he ends up killing this Egyptian and then hiding his body in the dirt. And one of the things that the Bible tells us when it describes that is it said that Moses thought that the people would realize that God was going to use him to deliver them. And uh, things don't go well. The next day, he sees a couple uh, uh, Jewish folks fighting, and he says, hey guys, what are you fighting for? And they just say to him, what, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And so he ends up fleeing for 40 years and wandering around out in the wilderness. And then Moses is walking, and he sees a burning bush, and he walks up to this burning bush, to see this is weird, this bush is on fire, but it's not burning. 
And in that conversation, God tells him, I'm going to send you back to Egypt. I have it all planned out. And uh, Pharaoh's going to reject you. And I'm going to destroy Egypt. And then when you leave, um, all the people are going to ask the Egyptians for things. And you're going to plunder Egypt because they're just going to give it to you. So this is a crazy thing. Like As you read the whole Exodus story, um, God tells Moses how that's going to go before it happens. Uh, because God has that all planned out. God has a purpose in all of it. And so what's Moses' response to God coming to him and saying, I want you to lead Israel? Well, he starts with all of his excuses <laughs> about why he can't do it. You guys remember that story? So he starts with, well, God, I don't even know your name. Like, well, who am I going to say sent me? And he's like, Israel's not going to listen to me. And so when, when Moses says, I don't know your name, well, God tells him his name. He's like, well, they're not going to listen to me. So then he, he gives him these three miracles to do of putting his hand in his coat. His hand's going to turn to leprosy. Throw a staff on the ground. It turns into a snake. Pour some water from the Nile out. It turns into blood. And so God just says, I'm just going to let you do these miracles. They'll know I sent you. And then he's like, uh, yeah, but I can't speak very well. I'm a terrible speaker. And, and God just, God doesn't say, oh, Moses, you're so humble. This is just so, I just appreciate you recognizing all of your weaknesses. You know, that is not what God says to Moses. God says, who made the mouth? And he's like, you're going to complain that you can't talk, but I'm sending you. I'm the one who makes the mouth. And uh, then after God does all these things, uh, Moses says, oh, please, God, send someone else. That's how, that's how he ends the whole thing, send someone else. You know, um, God is not happy about that. He's angry. But you know, you know what I think is so cool about God's graciousness? So then do you know what he does for Moses? He's like, all right, fine, Moses, go get your big brother. Uh, we'll, we'll let him go with you, and he can be your spokesperson. And I'll, I'll guide him, and I'll guide you. And he just takes this weak individual. And here's the thing I would say. It is positive. It is a good thing when we recognize our weakness. Um, that, that is a very important part of leadership. It's really an important part of everybody's life. But the problem is when we think success or failure, we think what God can do is influenced in any way by our gifts, our talents, our strength, our intelligence. And we don't recognize that God is the one who accomplishes his purpose and task. And here's the thing about uh, a humble person actually recognizes God's power. And so anytime they feel insecure or weak, they just go, yeah, that's true. Good point. I can't do this. But God can. And so you want to know how humility um, expresses itself? So one thing, you know, humility. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a place where you struggle with pride or you see anybody who struggles with pride? You know, pride flows out of one thing. It flows out of an inaccurate view of yourself. You know, I love in uh, Romans chapter 12 when Paul's talking about the use of spiritual gifts. This is what he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So we're supposed to think accurately about ourselves. The solution to pride is just look at yourself accurately in the mirror. 
Um, just see yourself accurately, and pride or humility comes naturally. So whenever you're feeling prideful, just take a step back and realize it's because I don't see myself accurately. Um, I love James chapter 1, verse 22, talking about doers of the word. They're people who look into God's word like a mirror, and then when they see what it says, they respond appropriately. You know, I loved uh, Jim's message. Um, so at the men's breakfast, Jim was actually talking about James and John, these sons of thunder. And it just was so encouraging and so inspiring. And one of the things is you just look at the weaknesses of these men, and yet how God transforms them and uses them so powerfully. Um, humility is brought on by accurate thinking. And uh, actually, when I think about um, God allowing Peter to fail, I think that was a big part of Peter's humility. When you think about Peter, as he writes First and Second Peter versus Peter in the Gospels, Peter's the way he is because he thinks about what happened in his life in the Gospels. And this is one of the things, like, do you remember when um, Jesus is saying he's going to go to the cross in Matthew 16? And it says that Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. Have you ever thought about the absolute arrogance of Peter to rebuke Jesus? Like, let's think about this for a second. Um, the Trinity planned the salvation of mankind before the earth was created. Like everything was planned. Everything was organized. Everything that was going to happen. You know, the Bible in, for, in uh, Ephesians 1.11 says that God works everything according to His will. And that's talking about salvation. God choosing people for salvation before the foundation of the world. I mean, God has everything planned. And uh, they all recognize, so Jesus is the Messiah, right? They've all recognized that He's the Messiah. In fact, isn't that what Peter says in Matthew uh, chapter 16? Uh, Jesus says, who, who do men say that I am? And He goes, the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? So He recognizes who He is. And then Jesus says to Peter and the disciples, hey guys, I'm going to go to the cross. This is Jesus' plan. This is God's plan before the foundation of the world. God planned it. God's working it out. You want to know what wasn't happening? Jesus was not going to Peter to say, hey, Peter, I'd like to know your thoughts and whether or not you agree and, and kind of what your input would be on what the Trinity has planned before the foundation. We'd like to know your thoughts and what you think is best. And uh, Jesus was just telling him this is what's going to happen. And he pulls him to the side and says, enough of that crazy talk, Jesus. We're not doing that. And Jesus rebukes him. Uh, Peter <laughs> rebukes Jesus. I mean, isn't that like insanity when you think about it in that perspective? Um, you know, it's pretty tragic when you see leaders who disregard what the Bible says in regard to the gospel, when, when you see leaders who just disregard what God says about life because they think they have a better plan, they think they know better what to do. Um, when, I think the realization of P, the fact that Peter did that must have, must have really brought some humility into his life. Or how about Matthew 26, where Peter says to Jesus, Though everybody else falls away, I won't. 
I mean, he thought, I'm better, I am stronger, I am more powerful, I am more brave than any of these other guys. And uh, then what ends up happening? You know, Jesus ends, or Peter ends up denying Jesus, and it actually says that after Peter denies Jesus, that Jesus looks over at him. And then Peter runs off. He's discouraged. He's devastated. And you know what I, what I think is interesting? Um, remember afterwards, what does Jesus do? He goes back and he finds Peter. Peter denied him three times. And then how many times does Jesus say to Peter, hey, Peter, do you love me? One of the things that I think about in that John 21, 15, is Jesus looks at uh, Peter and he says, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these Peter thought he was better than everyone else, and so Peter's, Jesus is like, so Peter, do you love me more than these people here? And just reminds Peter. So it's redemptive. Jesus gives him an opportunity to confess his love. Jesus is pointing out to him his failure. And uh, then uh, Jesus says to, to Peter, if I messed up names there, ignore that, but uh, Jesus just says to Peter, feed my sheep. And, that, and that's what actually uh, Peter's telling the elders, right? As a fellow elder, shepherd the flock of God. You know, I think that, that humility in leaders shows itself in three ways. One, it shows itself in consideration toward others. Um, leaders, a humble leader is not somebody who's prideful or judgmental toward the weaknesses that they see in other people. Um, leaders look around and they do. They see weaknesses in other people, but that's informed by the weaknesses that they see in themselves. Um, that's what Matthew 7 says, right? Get the log out of your own eye before you worry about the speck in someone else's. One of the things that has um, really stood out to me, and I know that this can be true of me and it's true of other people, but one of the things that, that can, st can really stand out is you'll have a team of people and you'll have somebody that has a huge problem in their life huge problem of a bad attitude toward other people, huge problem uh, potentially in their own doctrine. And you're just thinking to yourself, hey, how do I come alongside and help this person? How do I encourage them to love other people? How do I encourage them to think rightly about things that the Bible teaches? But you want to know what one of the most dominating things in their life is? They're very hard on anybody who has a doctrinal problem, though they have a huge doctrinal problem in their life. They're very hard on other people um, when it's like, in a sense, the people who need the most help are often the ones who are the hardest on other people. And that's not what God intends for leaders. You know, when I think about uh, Peter, one of the things that he says is this. You see him just motivated by his view of end times. He just says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, um, keep loving one another earnestly, since love co covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So um, leaders who are faithful and humble are not hard on other people. Um, they, like when you look at Peter and how he talks to leaders, like he challenges them. He says, I exhort you as your fellow elder, but he's not hard on people. He's gracious. He's humble. Um, here's another one, and I think that this is a really uh, significant thing. 
is that humble leaders actually obey God, and they rely on His wisdom rather than making up their own stuff. Um, so many of the leaders and, and churches and things that are going off track and going the wrong direction, it's because you get leaders who think it's their job to figure out what to do. This is my church. Let me figure out what should be done. Um, what would be the best way to do this or to do that? And instead of humble leaders saying, actually, no, my job is to read and understand what God has said and then just to do that. It's my job to obey. It's not my job to be the smartest person. It's not my job to figure out different things. You know, you think about um, this, this impacts people even in how they share the gospel. You know, when you read Jesus' story about the sower, and he just says the sower went out to sow, and he was just casting seed. And some fell on the road, some fell on the rocky soil, some fell on the weeds, and some fell on the good soil. And you want to know something? <laughs> it never says in there, well, you should change the seed. Let's see if we can find some seed that grows in rocky soil. You know, when you preach the gospel and somebody doesn't become a Christian, there's not a problem with the gospel. It's a problem with the heart of the person hearing. Amen. And there are so many people that as they want to share the gospel, they're evaluating the message. Hey, how could we say this differently? What's a different way that we could present this that won't be offensive to people? Um, I heard one famous pastor, huge church, does all kinds of conferences, and he says, don't say the Bible says, because people don't, are not motivated by that anymore. Say Paul says, because people like Paul say this, but don't say the Bible says, because nobody's impressed by that. And then I just look at the Bible, and I just go, what was the example in Scripture? They all said Scripture says this. It's what Jesus said, right? Doesn't the Scripture say this, and the Scripture say this, and the Scripture say this? And I got this famous pastor with a massive church saying, don't say the Bible says, or I just read the Bible and go, what did Jesus do? He said the Bible says. And so it's like you get these people who just think, hey, how can we be non-offensive? And let's, let's, let's edit our gospel presentation so more people would, would accept it. Hey, if you have a person living in rebellion against God, don't identify any of that sin because that will offend them. They'll walk away. Instead, how can we say, well, okay, their sin's not their problem, so let me just tell them that God loves them. And I think, well, I don't know. When I read the Bible, is that how Jesus presented the gospel? I don't think so. When Jesus was presenting the gospel, whenever there was his biggest crowds, he'd say his most offensive things, and then they would all walk away. And then Jesus would say to his disciples, hey, you're going to bail too? Look, everybody else left. You going to leave? Or um, the rich young ruler, he's like, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says, keep all the commandments. He says, oh, I did that. So he goes, okay, what's the one thing I could say that would make this person leave? Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you can have eternal life. Well, what was Jesus' message when he presented the gospel? Yeah, you're a sinner. You need to rely on my righteousness. But Jesus said, um, unless you will abandon your father, mother, brother, sisters, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Nobody gets to come to Christ and just go, hey, Jesus, I'm going to go my own way. In fact, I was, recently I was at a place where this person was presenting um, the gospel, and he just says, hey, Jesus is a gentleman. And so you can invite Jesus into your life, and you can ignore him, or you can listen to him. It really doesn't matter. Jesus is a gentleman, and he'll go with you kind of however you want. It'd be good 
if you ask Jesus for wisdom, but even if you blow them off, Jesus will kind of come along with you. You know, I never read that in the Bible. Uh, I, I read people, Jesus saying, I define everything. I am God. You will obey me. And, and it's like when you come to Christ, being a Christian is being in submission to God. But we live in a day and age where the biggest, most prominent thing is how do we remove the offense of the gospel? Yeah, I just want you to know that's arrogant. That's not humble. Uh, a humble person says, God, I believe you, and God, I trust you, and God, I will obey you. And if I present the gospel and people leave, I'm just going to go, did I do that faithfully or not? When it comes to how you run the church, the way that you manage things in a church, you know, God does not say, I want some people who are smart enough to calculate how things will go. Um, I, I think calculating outcomes um, as a leadership, as elders and as leaders, an elder's job, a leader's job is to read the Bible and say, how are we supposed to respond to this situation? And then obey what God says. Um, you know what the Pharisees did? They always calculated outcomes. Remember when uh, they go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And he says, well, I'll tell you what. Um, was John's baptism, was, was it from heaven or was it from man? And uh, they take a step back and they go, hold on one second, we'll, we'll give you, let, let, us give you, let us give you our answer. And they get together and they say, well, if we say it's from heaven, then he's going to say, why didn't you follow me? And if we say it's from earth or from man, then the people are all going to stone us because they re regarded John as a prophet. So then they come back to Jesus and they go, they calculated the outcomes. If we do this, we're going to have this problem. And if we do this, we're going to have this other problem. So they come back to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, um, we, we're not going to give you an answer. That's what Pharisees do. They calculate outcomes. You want to know what the worst leaders are? The Bible says this, yeah, but if we do that, People are going to get mad. If we do that, this is going to go wrong. If we obey this, then this is going to happen. We do not want leaders who calculate outcomes. That's arrogance. We want leaders who will just say, hey, what does the Bible say I'm supposed to do? You know, I've heard um, so many parents, like actually even in thinking through their parenting, hey, the God, God uh, you know, studying Scripture, I'm to raise my children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. But if I say this to them, they won't like me. If I say this to them, then it's going to wreck my relationship. And I just want you to know it's not just parents who are arrogant like that. It's also sometimes church leaders. You want to know what God intends? If you're a parent or if you're a church leader or if you're an elder, God just intends you're going to read Scripture you can do your best to obey what it says, to understand what it says, and this, then just do it. That's leadership. Faithful living. It goes on here, and it says, um, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those allotted to your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfailing crowd, crown of glory. 
So what is shepherding? You know, shepherding is pointing people to Christ. It's to oversee. It's to point people to Christ, to teach them what God says. When Paul talks about shepherding in Acts 20, he talked about himself, and he just said he spent time with people. He taught God's Word publicly, privately, and completely. He didn't leave out the things that might offend people. He told them everything. Um, He protected them from false wolves, from teachers. Um, He evangelized. He encouraged spiritual growth. He admonished. He warned. He instructed. He showed compassion. He was an example. And he prayed. Um, You know, being a spiritual leader also involves rescuing. Um, In Galatians 6.1, it says, Brothers, if any is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself. See, if you really love somebody, you're willing to confront them. You're willing to go address sin. You're willing to speak into the sinful choices that they make. But you go with a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves lest you be tempted. Do you know what biblical, um, biblically addressing and pursuing other people is to never look at a person and say, you know, I could never struggle with this thing you're struggling with. You're a really bad person. I, I can't believe that. I can't believe people act like this. It's going and it's realizing, hey, I have the same weaknesses. I have the same problems, but also I care enough about your spiritual well-being that I'm going to address this sin issue in your life. And if you hate me for it, um, I love you enough to be hated. Um, That's what Jesus said to his disciples, that all people are going to hate you because of me. Um, When you think about the motivation, it's not under compulsion. You know, the the worst thing in, in my years in ministry, there's been times that I've had people working under me in ministry, and if you didn't hold them very accountable, they wouldn't work. You had to tell people, hey, you have to be here at this time. You can't go home at this time. You constantly had to check up on them and see, okay, did you do this responsibility? Did you do this responsibility? Why aren't you doing this responsibility? Uh, You have to compel and drive some people. And the Bible says no leader should be like that. If you, have to, if you have to hire somebody, if some of you hire somebody to work in the church and you have to manage their hours, fire that person. Um, people should be driven and motivated to do the things that God calls them to do. Not under compulsion, not for shameful gain. Shameful gain is social praise or money. That's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. They love their positions of honor and they were lovers of money. Um, There are some people who, if you want them to do ministry, you just got to pay them. Um, You know what? People should be willing to do things for free. I've just got to tell you something I'm super thankful for, um, some of our leaders. And um, the first thing, when when we've had leaders come into this church, one of the first things I like is just let them volunteer. And and we had some part-time people volunteering. Um, The folks leading our children's ministry, Eddie and CJ, did it for free. Uh, they just, man, they loved the ministry and they wanted to do it, and we didn't pay them. And, and Cannon, when he stepped in um, to help lead worship, he did it for free. 
And part of the reason for that is that if you want to do ministry, are you willing to do it for free? If you have to be paid to do ministry, then you should never be in that position. We don't pay people to motivate them. And when I, when I first time I was hired, um, like I was a young guy, I was uh, 23 years old, and I was hired, and one of the elders came to me in the hiring process, and they said, we're going to pay you a really low salary. <laughs> they kept that promise. They did that. <laughs> so I, I was hired full-time, and they paid me a really low salary. Could never live on it. Thankfully, at that time, we had no kids, and Michelle had a job, so we were able to pay our bills. But one of, the, one of the things that the guy said was, if the youth group grows, <laughs> we'll pay you commission. <laughs> he told me that, that the more kids came to youth group, then they give me more money. And I just remember at the time thinking, man, what a, this is an elder that thinks I will be motivated to work harder if, for the promise of more money. On people's eternal destiny, hey, that's not a motivation for me. Give me some money. Um, me pleasing the Lord and what I do, that's not a motivation. Just give me more money. Um, and so actually, we do right now, just so you know, we'll mention this in our annual meeting, but we do pay <laughs> CJ and we do pay Canon. But that came second. Because first, you want to see that people have a heart and are willing to do things because they want to. So you want people that are not motivated by shameful gain, but that do what they do willingly, eagerly, and to be an example. You know, that's the other thing when you think about leaders. Leaders are examples. I think about that, you know, just these basic things that the Bible says. If somebody sins against you, go to them in private. So I remember about, about uh, this is probably about 30 years ago. I'm in an elder meeting, and so a bunch of people have gone and complained to the elders about somebody. And so this person shows up to the elder meeting, and then they show up and the elders go, here's a list of all the people, and here's a list of all the problems that these people have with you. And so this person gets blindsided in an elder meeting with all these complaints from other people. And um, in that meeting, I said... Um, Aren't people supposed to go to people privately? Why is it that this person is being confronted by a whole list of complaints that he has never heard? You want to know what the elders said? They said, we're elders. We are an exception to that. Did you know that elders are not an exception to what the Bible says? Have you ever thought to yourself, if i got a problem with somebody, I'm going to go tell one of the elders, maybe they'll take care of it. Did you know that that's wrong? You know, if you have an issue with somebody, the Bible says you are to go to that person. Do you want to know what an elder's job is if you have a problem with somebody? To help you go to that person. Elders are an example of Scripture. They are not an exception to Scripture. So, we need, elders need to be examples and motivated. Hey, let's jump into less time for the church, responsibilities of elders. But let's talk about our responsibility to elders. I'm just going to put this list here. Our responsibility to elders. 1 Thessalonians 
Um, first, we're to be an encourager. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. You know what the church should be doing? Encouraging one another, encouraging their leaders, building up, supporting. You know, this is partnership and ministry. You remember in Ephesians 4, it says that God gives pastors and teachers and, and, and these leaders to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You know whose job it is to do the ministry? All the people in the church. Elders are there. They should be encouraging people. But people in the church need to be encouraging each other and encouraging the leaders and building one another up. So the church is building each other up. The church should not be a critical, harsh place that's beating people up. Church should be a place where people are being encouraged and built up, actively involved, be actively involved in ministry with one another. Now, one of the things I want to point out, your responsibility to have elders. Look how many things on that list have a one another next to it. One of the best ways you bless the leaders in the church is do for each other what God intends you to do. Be an encourager. Build other people up. Here's one. It says this in verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect. Some translations translate this, appreciate those who labor over you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. So admonish has the idea of encouragement, but also correction. If somebody loves you enough to come and to address an issue in your life, appreciate that. Um, you know, uh, appreciation has as its idea to be understanding, to understand and uh, one of the things we're going to talk about at the end is that the whole body of Christ needs to be involved in admonishing and encouraging and helping. And when you are, you will appreciate leaders. Um, so we'll get to that at the end. So admonish um, to esteem highly. That means you value spiritual leadership. You understand that you need it. I think about Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You know, I, I have talked to so many leaders that are so discouraged because they get beat up by people in the church, the very people that they love. I remember one time I took some kids away to a camp and um, they're all under my watch. And I used to always tell the leaders that you have to be with the kids at all times because we're responsible. We're there to encourage them, to disciple them, to keep them safe. And so we had these three kids that got off by themselves without their leaders. So it's kind of a problem for me and my supervision. But they were in some boats and they went out to this lake. And uh, some guys got in their idea that it would be a good idea for them to climb a tree and to throw all their clothes off and then jump into the lake naked in front of all these kids at a Christian camp. And they thought that would be a good idea. And so when that all went down, um, I found out about all that. And so I started making phone calls to parents afterwards, um, partly to apologize to them that I let this happen on my watch. And to just say, I'm really sorry, but I just want you to know this is what happened. This is how we dealt with that. We met with all the kids. We talked to them. And you know, some of the parents were so appreciative. Thank you. I'm really sorry that my kid did that. And then there were some other parents that ripped into me. 
what are you telling me about this for? I don't want to hear about this. And I'm just thinking to myself, it was so hard for me to make that call. Man, I loved them. I appreciated them. I wanted to talk to them about what happened. And it was really a hard thing for me to make that call, and they ripped into me. And then it's easy to take a step back and think, man, they don't even appreciate this. I'm not going to help them anymore. But then I realized, actually, I'm not serving them. I'm serving the Lord. And so their bad attitude should have a zero impact on my commitment to loving and caring for and serving their child. And there are many examples of how that happened. Um, We need to value and esteem highly in love. I've seen a ton of people in ministry who quit serving, who quit loving because they are discouraged by people who attack them. That's a tragedy when that happens. Now, that's a tragedy if a church ever treats somebody like that. But anybody who gives up in ministry because people attack them and don't appreciate them, that person should never be in leadership. There's tons of leaders that quit because of that. Um, Do you know there are massive numbers of pastors that resign regularly? And first of all, it is heartbreaking that that happens. And secondly, if a person resigns because of that, I'm glad because they shouldn't be in ministry. Because if you don't love and serve people to please the Lord, if you only love and serve people when they appreciate it, you should not be in ministry. But it is a tragedy when a church makes their leaders feel that way. Guys, ever know of any leaders or pastors who have quit because they're discouraged, all kinds of problems and difficulties, and next thing you know, they just resign and they're gone. You ever see that? That's tragic when that happens. The fifth thing is sharing in the shepherding ministry. It says, we encourage you, brothers, admonish the idle. Um, Another uh, translation for that is unruly. People who are rebellious, who refuse to follow leadership, who have a bad attitude, admonish those people. Um, Do you know who's being told to admonish there? It's not the leaders. It's the church. You ever hang out with somebody who has a bad attitude and they're rebellious and and they are critical and and they, they don't pursue godliness? You want to know what the job of the church is? Admonish those people. And when you admonish them, it'll make you appreciate how difficult it is to admonish. But that's something that God calls every Christian to. Admonish the idol encourage the faint-hearted. Do you show up on Sunday morning and think, who's feeling discouraged? Who's feeling like giving up? How can I come alongside that person and love them and encourage them and bless them? That's actually everybody in the church's job, to encourage and to help the weak. That's when a person can't do something, to come alongside and help them. And then it ends by, it just says, be patient with everyone And then um, do good to one another. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. It is God's intention as the body of Christ that we do good to people. That means when you feel offended, that you don't dislike people. That means that you love people and you are motivated to do good for them, to return good for evil. That is what God intends for 
the church, and for leaders. Hey, it's, it's challenging, huh? What God says, and man, what an incredible blessing it is to be in the body of Christ, and what an incredible blessing it is to be in a church where the leaders and the people in the church take seriously what God says we're supposed to be like. That makes for a wonderful place to be. I want to end with just saying this. So I, I met with, uh, I, I've spoken with some leaders, and I've had two people that they, they, they help plant churches, they oversee leaders, like they're in a high up position, not in a local church, they help lo- local church pastors. And you want to know what they told me? Uh, from two different people, I've heard this. Don't be friends with anybody in the church. What? Yeah, yeah, they said, don't be friends with anybody in the church. Um, you got to get your friends somewhere else. Don't be friends with anyone in the church. Keep yourself kind of closed off to the people in the church. And um, can I just tell you, first of all, I appreciate both of those people, and they've been through a lot. But the other thing I want to tell you is that they're absolutely crazy. (laughs) Could you imagine having a leader that says, you should all love each other, but I'm not going to? Um, you know, in our family, I, I just got to tell you, it's been easier for me than everybody else because this church is very loving. This church is very encouraging. And I'm not saying there's never bad moments, but this is a great church to be in. Amen. The last church I was in, an amazing church where people loved and encouraged and appreciated our family. It was so good to be there. And that's not to say that there weren't exceptions to that. And there were some exceptions around the time we left our last church. And you know what? I got all my kids together, and we talked about some of the ways that we were hurt and some of the hurtful things that happened. And you want to know what I told them? Hey, we're going to go to a new church, but we're not looking for a church where this stuff won't happen. It it happened here, not very much, but it did happen in small ways in the next church we go to. Guess what? It's going to happen there too because the church is full of sinful people. That's just life. Um, Have any of you met anybody who has ever been hurt in a church that they were in? Like that happens sometimes, right? But we don't say, okay, I'm going to not go to church or I'm going to protect myself for everybody in the church. We just show up and we just do the things that God says and we love people and we're not surprised sometimes that things don't go the way they should. But we just get on the business with loving God and loving each other. So just so you guys know, if you want to be my friend, I'll I'll be your friend. Like we're, We're friends. I'm not closed off to that. Our family is not closed off to that, and I would say none of us should be. And that does not rise and fall on a church being perfect or not being perfect. Let's have leaders that do what God calls them to be, and let's be a church family that does what God calls us to do. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word. God, I pray that we would, be, we would have faithful leaders. I just want to thank you for the men that we have asked to serve who have said yes to serving. God, I pray that you would help them to shepherd and to be faithful and that, Lord, as a church, we would love them and that we would shepherd them, that we would encourage them, that we would help them. And, Lord, that this church would be an effective church. And so, God, we pray that that would be true because we love you, we worship you, and we obey you in your name. Amen.